The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. It was one of the most watched and feared cases of the Supreme Court term, advancing a sweeping Republican-backed effort to oust state judges from their long-standing roles in federal elections. But in a 6-3 to three decision, the Supreme Court rejected the novel theory that would have given state legislatures virtually unchecked power to make rules for congressional and presidential elections, essentially without any oversight. Justice Elena Kagan had warned about the consequences during the oral arguments. It would say that legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of (coughs) voter protections that the state constitution, in fact, prohibits. Uh, It might allow the legislatures to insert themselves, to give themselves a role in the certification of elections. And even some of the conservative justices expressed concerns about the so-called independent state legislature theory, with Justice Brett Kavanaugh saying Republican arguments went beyond what three conservative justices had laid out in a concurring opinion in the Bush v. Gore case when they said that the Florida Supreme Court had overstepped its authority by ordering ballot recounts. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore, where he seemed to acknowledge that state courts would have a role interpreting state law. Joining me is an elections law expert, Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, this case was one of the most watched of the Supreme Court term. How important is this decision? I think the decision is very important, even if its significance is not entirely clear. It's very clear that the court rejected the most extreme version of the argument that state courts cannot interpret state constitutions in a way that limits state election laws dealing with federal elections. The case was brought to challenge the ability of state courts to read their state constitutions to ban gerrymandering in federal elections, in congressional elections. And the court rejected the most extreme version and said that no state courts have a proper role to play in reviewing the decisions of state legislatures, and that includes applying state constitutional provisions that could limit state legislatures, such as provisions limiting gerrymandering. But the court left open the possibility of some federal judicial review of state court decisions to make sure that they were not too extreme or extreme departures from prior state law. So the court kind of kept some space for itself to review state court decisions, although it rejected the most extreme version of the effort to limit state courts. So explain what the independent state legislature theory is and whether this decision is a complete repudiation of that theory. 
Now, the independent state legislature theory grows out of the language in the Constitution that says that the rules for running congressional elections and the election of presidential electors are to be set by the state legislature. The language literally says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for Congress is in one part of the Constitution and for holding the elections of the presidential electors in another part of the Constitution is to be set by the state legislature. That's what the Constitution says. So the question is, if it says the state legislature, do state courts have any role to play in reviewing actions of the state legislature or in even in interpreting actions of the state legislature? And this came up in a case from North Carolina where the North Carolina Supreme Court said that the North Carolina legislature violated the North Carolina Constitution when it gerrymandered its congressional plan. And the argument was made that basically state courts and state constitutions have no role to play in limiting state legislatures when they're dealing with federal elections. And that's the argument that the Supreme Court rejected. That's the idea of an independent state legislature, that the state legislature is independent of the state courts and independent of the state constitution. And the Supreme Court flatly rejected that. But it did say that since we are talking about federal elections and that there is some role for the U.S. Supreme Court in reviewing state Supreme Court decisions, reviewing state laws that impact federal elections. So they didn't completely give state courts a blank check, but they did affirm the idea that state courts and state constitutions have a legitimate role to play in reviewing state election laws that affect federal elections. So the justices could have taken an off-ramp and not decided this. Why do you think they went forward to decide it? That's a good question, and a good part of the court's opinion goes into why the case is not moot. As you know, after the 2022 election, the North Carolina Supreme Court actually reversed itself and said that we no longer read our state constitution as banning gerrymandering and that the decision was now moot. Well, the court had a kind of a technical reason as to why it wasn't moot, saying, well, actually, the North Carolina Supreme Court never withdrew the old decision. And indeed, the old decision striking down the original map that the state legislature adopted is still law. The state is now actually writing a new map. So the court had a technical argument as to why it wasn't moot. And three justices dissented from that. I think they felt that this issue has been percolating now for some time. It came up and wasn't directly addressed several times in the 2020 election. And I think they felt this was as good a case as any for addressing the issue. It's likely to come back. And right now, there's no election pending. And if it comes back, it'll come back next year. We're getting close to the 2024 elections. So although they don't say this, I think they felt this case was fully briefed. It was argued an incredibly long argument. I think it was like two hours. It got a huge amount of attention. Uh, and I think they felt this was as good a case as any for actually putting down an opinion. So it was six to three with Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett joining Roberts and the court's three liberals in the majority. Justice Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch dissented. Does the place of any justice in that lineup surprise you at all? Not really. I mean, I think I was less certain about where Justice Barrett would come out. But I think if you're paying attention to the oral argument back in November, I think, you heard some skepticism from Roberts, from Kavanaugh, and I think even from Barrett about the extreme nature of the North Carolina legislature's argument. But I think they all had to point out that legislatures don't exist in a vacuum, that they're creatures of state constitutions and they're part of a state legal system. And I think the extreme argument that North Carolina legislature made, I think, helped shape 
the outcome of the case. And so I think also it was a case where there was some concern that the argument that the legislature was making would be like an extreme disrespect for state Supreme Courts. And I think the justices also wanted to show some respect for the role of state Supreme Courts, that they also engage in judicial review of state legislatures. Three of the justices dissented on the mootness. I mean, the, the first part of Justice Thomas's opinion, which was joined by Justices Gorsuch and Alito, was on mootness grounds, that the case really shouldn't have been taken. The remainder of the opinion, which Justice Alito did not sign, was on the merits and basically said, we agree with this independent state legislature theory, that it's up to the legislature to make these decisions and that there's no role for state courts. Thomas dissented. Should he have recused himself since his wife, Ginny Thomas, was known to have been pushing the independent state legislature theory? Well, maybe, but her involvement, of course, was in the presidential election, and this is a separate issue. Technically, it didn't involve presidential elections. It involved congressional elections. It was separate litigation. I think justices don't normally recuse, even when they or spouses, more unusual, have expressed general views on a legal theory. They're more likely to recuse or to think about recusing when they or a family member have a direct involvement in the particular case. And I don't think there was anything like that in this case. The midterm showed that control of Congress can depend on the drawing of congressional lines. So what does this decision mean for the 2024 elections? It doesn't really resolve anything in terms of that. I mean, it leaves some role for state courts to review state election laws in light of state constitutions. But it also means that the Supreme Court may be reviewing those decisions. So, I mean, I think we're going to see cases citing this case and lawyers making arguments based on this case, but I think it's too soon to tell how exactly it's going to impact. I mean, this case involved an interpretation of the state constitution in North Carolina that the North Carolina court said kind of bar gerrymandering. There's, I think, a case coming out of Ohio which raises similar issues involving gerrymandering. But Ohio has a constitutional amendment which clearly addresses gerrymandering. So there may be continuing litigation involving districting. But I think most of the districting issues from the current election cycle, I think, have been resolved. But I do think we may see some impact of this in a case coming out of Ohio. I was going to ask you about that case because the Supreme Court is reviewing an appeal, right, of that case? I think this case helps the anti-gerrymandering position in Ohio a bit, because in North Carolina, one of the problems for the anti-gerrymandering position, the North Carolina Constitution doesn't literally address gerrymandering, it just talks about free and fair elections. And the North Carolina Supreme Court, in a decision which has since dropped, said, well, that means no gerrymandering. Pennsylvania Supreme Court has said something similar. In Ohio, the voters actually amended their constitution to put in restrictions on partisan gerrymandering. I think what this case does is make it clear that that's valid and is enforceable. So I think for states that have actual provisions that expressly address gerrymandering, that might include New York or Florida or Ohio now, and I think Michigan, I think this confirms that those are valid. I think the trickier cases will be ones that states like the old North Carolina position or what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has done is to read into general language talking about free and fair elections, a restriction on gerrymandering. 
In the recent past, this court has significantly cut back on the Voting Rights Act with the chief justice at the helm. But this month, we saw it gave an unexpected boost to the Voting Rights Act with Chief Justice John Roberts, surprise, surprise, in the majority. What do you think's happening on the court? Is it a question of the disapproval of the court? I mean, it seems like a reverse for Justice Roberts. Well, I think, though, the case you're referring to, Allen versus Milligan, coming out of Alabama, yes, it was, I think, a big surprise to voting rights advocates and a pleasant surprise in that case. But in some sense, it was a, I call it a small C conservative decision in that the court basically sustained the status quo. It sustained existing rules for interpreting the Voting Rights Act. It affirmed a decision of a three-judge panel coming out of Alabama that Alabama's districting was discriminatory in effect. Alabama was challenging that, and Alabama was presenting a kind of radical theory, which would have significantly undermined 40 years worth of interpretations of the Voting Rights Act. So although it was surprisingly protective of the Voting Rights Act, it was, as I say, small-c conservative was more or less saying, we're going to stick with the status quo, we're going to stick with the precedents that we've been following since the 1980s. I mean, it was an important case, I mean, not to minimize it, because it has implications for districting in Alabama and in Louisiana and possibly in a few other states. And so it is likely to see some changes in congressional, certainly in Alabama, there's likely to be a new congressional district created, and possibly in Louisiana, the Supreme Court just this week, relying on the Alabama case, rejected an effort by Louisiana to challenge the decision of a district federal court in Louisiana saying that there's discrimination in Louisiana's districting. Am I reading too much into it that Brett Kavanaugh is drifting toward the middle? I think in this one, he is. But he did make a point. I mean, the Chief Justice's opinion is largely one that defends uh, judicial review by state Supreme Courts. And at the end says, but, you know, we don't give them free reign. There could be cases that go too far. This does involve the federal constitution. We have a role to play. And I think Kavanaugh, in effect, wrote a current opinion that largely restates that. But I think you can see it as underscoring it and maybe yanking the opinion a little bit more towards I don't know if I'll call it the right, but a little bit more towards emphasizing the role of federal courts in reviewing state court determinations that involve federal elections. So, you know, at least in this area, he may be, you know, the middle justice. Have the justices taken up any cases for next term involving elections, voting? There is one coming out of South Carolina. Uh, again, involving issues of race and congressional districting. And actually, that's going to be an interesting case because it's really about the mix of race and party. And it basically involves the redrawing of the district that's in the greater Charleston area to make it more Republican, essentially. It's a district which I think has gone back and forth in recent years, was Democrat elected in 2018, Republican elected in 2020 and 22. And the South Carolina legislature redistricted in a way that made it somewhat more Republican, mostly by moving, uh, in effect, a lot of black voters out of the district. And so it's been challenged as racial discrimination, as a kind of a racial gerrymander, which the lower court found that it was, but I think Alabama is appealing. And one of the questions is, if the court has, has struggled with before, is how to disentangle partisan gerrymandering, which is not illegal, from racial gerrymandering, which is. Thanks for those insights, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. 
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.